Hey everybody, it's Colin Doctor here and welcome back to the second episode of the Asking for a Parent podcast series. Today's episode is the listeners questions episode and thank you everybody who sent in questions through the askingforaparent at gmail.com email address and through the Twitter and Instagram pages. Uh, we've got a huge response from the, the initial episode and so we'll try and get through as many of those questions today as we can. And I also want to just thank everybody for listening and subscribing and downloading the, the first episode. The reaction has been phenomenal and we're delighted about it. In light of the, the response being so good, we've decided to change the format of our release. We were hoping to initially release one episode a week, but what we're going to plan on doing now is we're going to release the listeners' questions episodes on a Sunday evening and the parenting interview on the Wednesday. So that will mean we'll be letting out two episodes a week as opposed to one. And the difference to that is that my friend behind the scenes who's doing all the work, Adam, is going to be a lot busier, but hopefully you'll get that content nice and quick and fast. And I think there's a lot of people out there struggling at the moment, and let's see if we can answer the questions as promptly as we can. And before I get into asking for a parent questions today, I just want to say that the format for the Asking for a Parent listener series is that I've asked some friends on to ask the questions on your behalf, because... A, you don't want to be just listening to my voice for the whole 40 minutes, but also it'll help if some of my answers are a little bit unclear, they're going to be able to unpick that with me and ask me for some clarifications throughout that. So without further ado, let me introduce you to my guest, Tamara Nolan. Tamara is Head of Communications and Advocacy at St. Patrick's Mental Health Services, and I've known Tamara for a number of years, and she's always been a great help to me in terms of coaching me around media work and, and getting me comfortable. We worked together on the Walk in My Shoes radio or Wims radio a number of times, and she's a fabulous person, but she's also a mother, uh, and uh, she comes with a personal experience, and she's no stranger to a microphone either. So I'm delighted to have her with me, and, and thanks very much for giving me the time. Tamara, how are you? I'm very welcome, and thanks for having me. How are you coping um, with all this madness in this strange 2020 that is evolving? I mean, I think very much so, like like Karen Costa said on, on your first episode, it's it's one day at a time is, is the way we're getting through this. Yeah, I certainly, well, personally, we felt that the, the first lockdown was a lot tougher with the, with the children not being in school, with not really being able to get out, for, for them not being able to get out to see their peers at all, at, at least now. I've, I've two daughters, one's Lauren is 14 and Juliana is seven. And at least now Lauren is able to get out and see her boyfriend for a walk. And I think that's made a huge difference. Um, I think personally, I've been I've been working from home now since March. Yeah, it, it it's fantastic that you know we're able to work from home. It's just not the same when you're having to do it online the entire time through um, Teams or Zoom. You know. Yeah, there is a, there's definitely a loneliness to the working at home. I think I've found, and uh, I think once I mastered putting a lock on the tree press, I think I'm managing it a little bit better. But these are strange times, and again, some people have found the the first lockdown much tougher, like you've said, and others maybe struggling with the second lockdown because I think there's a bit of COVID fatigue around and deflated after the kind of second surge, etc. So, yeah, I think as you say, every day is is different, and and it's each day at a time. So. You've had a chance to have a look through the listeners' questions. So what do we want to start with? Yeah, so I mean, I guess we'll start with a couple of of questions that were relatively similar enough from two parents. So there are really ways around how you would manage anxiety, both for the child and the parent. So one of your listeners has asked, can you talk about how to manage anxiety for children and parents? I need help finding effective communication strategies for communicating with my children around the global pandemic, but I'm worried myself. And then another parent has quite specifically talked about 
how their child has gone from being, you know, a four-year-old who was totally happy-go-lucky until they went back to Crescent July, and now they've become ultra paranoid about germs. So, you know, they're, they're constantly calling the parents to say, you know, I've touched my eye, ear, mouth, and they're freaking out if we haven't washed our hands properly. And, you know, that they're quite concerned because they're not themselves that anxious about constant hand washing, you know, that they're obviously you know, doing it as much as possible, but they're they're just worried about the amount their child has expressed their anxiety over um, having to keep clean. Okay, well, like, I'm guessing the first thing I'd say to both of these parents is I don't think you're on your own because this has been a query that has come across my desk multiple times in the last number of months. And I suppose since the return to school, we've maybe seen quite a bit more of this. I suppose what people might have been aware is that we were involved in recording a, a program called Big School, which where we did a kind of a fly in the wall documentary on junior infants. And I can remember just watching that the last episode of that. And when we were watching the footage around it to see four and five year olds coming in and, you know, having to sanitize their hands and keeping two meters and doing everything that was kind of contrary to the world that they believed or the, certainly the world that they left. And it, we have to accept that this is a very different school that they went back to, to the one that they left. The different rules, the different uh, fears and, and anxieties and the whole culture of school is going to be a little bit different where you can't share things and you can't play together and you no know, touch and things like that is going to be commented on. So the first thing is perhaps there's a normative reaction to this. There's lots of children are struggling with it. To what degree is the interesting one? And where these parents are bringing out, there seems to be an excessive response by the small child where, where they're absolutely overwhelmed by threat. Now, when we're anxious, we do two things. We overestimate the challenge and we underestimate our own ability. And so what we've got to do when we're trying to help somebody who's suffering from anxiety is to put the challenge in perspective and give them a, an empowered sense of their own ability. So encouraging a child to say, you know, you know, there is things that we need to do. We need to wash our hands. We need to be careful. But that's what we need to do to keep ourselves safe. And, you know, you don't need to do that all the time. There's a sense of this lad is probably taking it excessively and is, is worried and is kind of his fear and threat is kind of taking over. So you have to kind of introduce some degree of balance. So you're looking for context. You're looking for perspective. Again, the challenge here is trying to communicate that to a small child who has limited language in that way. So for me, it's about the atmosphere. So the parents are saying, you know, how can I communicate uh, not to be anxious when I'm anxious myself? And I do think... Mm we have to manage that. I think that's a really important part of the kind of, it's the airplane philosophy. You know, you put your own mask on first before you manage the child. And, and again, we have to kind of try and manage our own anxiety around this as much as we can. The second person is saying that they're not anxious, but the child is. I wonder about an anxious teacher or is there anxiety somewhere that they're picking up from? Because the adult in the room tends to determine the temperature of anxiety and fear in children around them. There's lots of reasons for teachers to be fearful, and I certainly don't want to come across as critical. But if you have a, a teacher who's PPE standing in the room who's terrified of, of catching a virus on, on front of a group of second classers, they're going to pick up on that. And so it is, it's, it's to try and maintain a degree of containment and calm as much as possible. And that's, this is the trick, Tamara. What we want is we want our children to be socially conscious. We want them to wash their hands. We want them to cough etiquette and keep their distance, but we don't want them up at night worrying about the numbers and trying to get that balance is going to be difficult. And I'd love to say there's one way of doing it, but there isn't because it depends on each child. Some children tend to be more hypersensitive and they tend to 
a little bit deeper than others. So they'll worry a little bit more about things like the numbers. And those children need to be protected from that information. Whereas other children are a bit more robust and resilient and maybe a little bit disinterested um, and they won't be as affected by it. So again, uh, there's no one way to parent. The parenting is about being able to pace something at the right pace and being able to respond and be flexible to the child's needs. So for this, it's really just trying to manage calm, trying to manage relaxation and trying to get the child into a place where they can feel a little bit safe. I think there may be an issue also around, you know, when we are working from home and as you opened it's great to be working at home. Children have gotten very used to spending time with mom and dad and the return to creche and childcare and school kind of, it's a rupture of that relationship. And so many children have, have worried about going back to school. Not, and when, you, when someone has an anxiety about attending school, there can be an anxiety about something in school, but it also can be an anxiety about leaving home. Do you know what I mean? So there might be the, the mesh detachment with the parents that might be causing the anxiety as opposed to there being anything in school that they're fearful of. Um, so, I mean, maybe looking a little bit around that and see if there's a little bit of anxiety around the relationship with mom and dad and maybe a little bit of anxiety about leaving them um, and explore that with them. But it's really about reassurance. And I, I've used this phrase a few times, but I think we need to kind of say, it's like the roller coaster, Tamara. You can't guarantee to a child that everything's going to be okay, but you can guarantee that if something happens, you're going to be there with them. And that you're going to get through it um, and it's an unusual message in the middle of a pandemic but it is that your child believes you know we've got this this is okay uh, and i'll manage it for you does that make sense it does yeah and just going back to the first parent i suppose who's, who's wondering about finding effective communication strategies around the pandemic when they're to themselves i mean that's often something I, I wonder about myself like how much of this how honest should we be with our children and how much should we be communicating you know is it okay when you know, my 14 year old asks for it for about, you know, what are the numbers today that, you know, that they're, we're, we're open to, to sharing with them what's coming up, you know, on a daily basis or, you know, should you limit us in the same way you're trying to limit the news yourself? To yeah, I think, I think it is. We have to regulate the information for the child or the teenager, depending on their developmental level. So I've heard stories of two and three year olds asking mum, what's the numbers today? And that's too much. They're, they're not cognitively, socially or emotionally built to manage that, nor can they really understand it in, in any meaningful way, whereas a teenager would be able to understand that. But I would also go with the temperament of the child. So the child who tends to see things a little bit through the, the lens of threat might need to be protected and you might need to regulate their exposure to that stuff by encouraging them to, to watch less of it. Whereas other children who may be, again, more indifferent or more robust about it might be able to take that information on a little bit. So it is about scaling it according to your child. And as you know, as a parent, you are the expert of your own child. You know them better than anyone. And so from the point of view, it is about trusting that ability to make that call and trust in your own ability to regulate or expose the child to the information that you think they can manage. But it is, again, because the world we live in, everything is COVID and everything, the media message is quite scary. And like as adults, we're struggling to manage the threats of surges and, you know, from the point of view of managing our own sense of safety, and children are not immune to that. And even children who are very, very small, they pick up on atmosphere. They take, pick up on messaging. They pick up on, on the media narrative around you know, fear and anxiety. And we have to remember, and I think this is important, and it was maybe something about the messaging that I, I had an issue with, where we, we were to inf encouraged, Tamara, to kind of behave like we were infectious. And children were asked to do the same without really having the 
adult ability to adjust to that fantasy. Do you know what I mean? So we know we're doing this for something good, but for children, and I, I really do think there has been an impact of them being seen as vectors or as, you know, and I've seen it in my own children where my eldest lad would be reluctant to go into the shops or into the petrol station because he doesn't like how it makes him feel when people look at him that way. And, you know, they don't have to wear masks when they're under 12 and things like that. And so there's a kind of a nervousness that people are, are judging them and making, you know, views. And again, children are not immune to atmosphere and they pick up on that. And I just wonder, because we see ourselves through the eyes of the other, how are they seeing themselves through the eyes of of perhaps being a potential vector or threat uh, without necessarily having an understanding as to why they have to do that. So getting back to the messaging issue, fear is a very effective way of getting compliance, but it's not a good way of encouraging understanding. So where you have a a more kind of explanatory, a more nourishing explanation of things, the child will understand the why as opposed to just the what. And I think that perhaps the why piece was, and understandably in the busyness of things was perhaps something we missed or skipped over. And it's no harm to go back over that now with children and say, you're doing this to keep things okay. It's not that you have something wrong with you. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I, I do think that the messaging at the start was very much focused on being the vectors and that probably had a, a very neg- negative impact. There's um, also another people. messaging issue that I think is really interesting from a psychological point of view. We know that when you're, you know, if you're trying to get a child to do something, incentivizing the the things that they do well works better than just challenging the things that they don't do well. And what we're looking at the moment in that, certainly in the last month or two was, you know, 10% of the population maybe not following the rules where 90% are. And all the messaging is at the 10% and not encouraging the 90% who are. Do you know what I mean? So you're much more likely to get the 90% to kind of throw their hands up and become resigned and say, well, there's no point in doing this. I'm not getting any reward for it. And again, it's that idea that incentivizing good behavior tends to work more effectively than admonishing bad behavior. And again, maybe on a a cultural or communal or societal scale, we could have learned a little bit from that, maybe. Yeah, I need to remind myself of that as well. (laughs) Um, So you mentioned mentioned there a few minutes ago about children getting getting, used to spending so much time with their parents being at home. And this leads into uh, one of the other questions from one of your listeners. I'm asking about my three-year-old boy lately. He's tensing up when he's getting to crash and the preschool gate, yet he seems to love it once he's there. And in the last few days, he's had a meltdown saying he's sick and he wants to stay with me as I work from home. And, you know, once it happens, it's taking us ages to calm him down, even enough to, to, to get him dressed and get him out the door. Any advice on how we could actually avoid this escalation? Yeah, again, it's, it's an interesting choice the word, to avoid the escalation. I think they're escalating to avoid, if that makes sense. So um, in terms of what this child is doing, if they're if they're acting up around apprehensive anxieties, they're apprehensive about going, they're okay when they get there, but it's the process of going and leaving is the issue that may be causing the anxiety. And there may be an attachment feel to this, that they have gotten very used to mum being at home. And perhaps there is a, a, a worry about going outside of mum's proximity a little bit. What we can't do is reward avoidance. So from the point of view of allowing him to stay home when he does act out, kind of reinforces the wrong message. It's really about trying to, and again, getting back to that message of incentivizing him to try it and to get in. And when he manages a day in school, you know, kind of heaping on the praise for for managing to be away from mum, as opposed to maybe reinforcing his need to be with mum. And we can oftentimes make mistakes in this one tomorrow because, you know, when we're trying to help a child to feel a little bit better, we may give the wrong message. And I give the example of, you know, the child who's starting primary school and junior infants, 
and you know they're anxious or they're upset and the tendency on the parents side is to kind of hang around and make sure they're okay or stand at the bottom of the class or to sit with them or whatever the case may be and that may ease your anxiety because you can see what's happening but what it, the message that it gives to the child is i don't trust these guys either there's another message being communicated so we need to be able to kind of and again it's kind of saying to the child i know you've got this i know this is going to be okay and I, I know you're going to be safe here, so I'm going to leave and you're going to stay. And as difficult as that is as a parent, it does send a message to the child that you believe in their own ability. And remember when we talked about anxiety, it's about managing, the, put the challenge in perspective, but also nourish their own ability to cope. And sometimes we can disable children by not believing in their own ability to manage it. One more question, Coleman, in relation to pandemic and COVID. I have a question for you about living with vampires, i.e. older teens and young adults who stay up all night and sleep all day. Why? And it's worse during lockdown. Also, any tips for living with 19 to 23 year olds at home when we're together all the time? I know there's a lot of parents like me out there trying to navigate this togetherness and not very much guidance on how to keep things on track and stop progressing to parenting as if they're young kids. Any words of wisdom appreciated? Yeah, this is difficult. This is tricky. And again, it's tricky because that cohort, I think, are a cohort that have been probably most severely affected by the pandemic. And, and I think from the point of view of the, the 19 to 23 year olds are, they should be probably in college. They should be having, engaging in life and doing freshers week. And they maybe should have done their leaving cert and they maybe should have gone on their leaving cert holiday and had their debs. And, you know, there's a real sense of, of a window of time being missed out by that population. And I'm speaking to them all the time and they're saying, look, I'll never have my Debs again, or I'll never have my first year in college again, or I'll never have, you know, and there's a whole sense of what's the point in, there's nothing in it for us to get up for. And if you think about the hospitality sector and the entertainment sector have been too hugely hit in terms of the, the, the global pandemic. And so like for, for young people, music festivals are hugely important. They're not to us in our 40s who get to one every two years, but to them it is. Gigs, going to music, having nightlife, going to meet friends. And also the, the hospitality sector was a great employer of that age group. So lots of them would be, you know, collecting glasses and lounge girls and lounge boys and working in hotels and doing a bit of waiter, waitressing and waitering and all that sort of stuff. And of those opportunities are not there either. So the challenge with the waking people up of that age is what are you waking them up for? And it really <laughs> came to a head when I was talking about this over the pandemic and someone was saying, my child is completely out of sync. He's up all night and sleeping all day. And there was a, I actually read this very funny tweet where somebody said my 19 year old slept in for their barber's appointment, which was at quarter to four this afternoon. And there was a kind of a sense of, you know, this, this exasperated parent that someone in their whole body clock was flipped on its head. But what, if you were to get your, 19 year old or 20 year old up at, at nine o'clock in the morning to come down to the sitting room it's really difficult to kind of say well you have to come and sit here for the day you can't go outside you can't do things you and so we were kind of I, I think as parents were were kind of immobilized or paralyzed in terms of instigating that because they weren't they weren't missing out on something they were just missing out on daytime and many of them said look, the Wi-Fi is much better at nighttime because there's not many people around so I can play FIFA with my mates and things like that. So they were being quite practical about it. But I, I just, I, I, don't, I don't know whether there's a simple answer for this because I just, but I do think a degree of empathy with this group that 
there's a kind of a, a cohort that we kind of see as kind of millennials, a bit entitled, a little bit lazy. And I think that's a very unfair because I think a lot of them are industrious and work hard. But to try and motivate yourself to attend college online, to try and motivate yourself, like if, if we go back to the homeschooling issue tomorrow, when we took out the social side of school, just getting your children to the table to do maths, English, Irish was really difficult. It was a novelty for a half a week. And then they were saying, like, if we thought about it when we went to school, 90% of our motivation was to meet our friends, to hang out, to do that, and 10% probably to, to go to class and learn the stuff. In the college situation now, you're just getting up to learn the stuff and the social pieces are significantly compromised. And so I, I wouldn't, not being an, in regulation with daytime and nighttime is not good for anyone's mental health and certainly wouldn't be better. And I would certainly try and incentivize them from that point of view. But I do think it has to be coupled with a degree of understanding that they are, they are rightly disgruntled because a lot of their, they, they're right to feel a little bit disenfranchised by the way in which the pandemic has had, has hit out. And I think perhaps as growing adults, we have a little bit of a lack of empathy or understanding of just how difficult this is for them because, uh, and again, they bring up the issue of something as simple as romantic loneliness. You know, how am I ever going to meet someone in a social distance world? How will I ever, like, if there's no nightclubs, there's no pubs, like, this is my time to be meeting people and living my life and getting out there and and it's all passing me by from my bedroom. And and I do think there's, um, yeah, a little bit of understanding and empathy but again, a little bit of directive support around the importance to get some semblance of normality around daytime and nighttime. But I, and I, I'm a long-winded way of saying I don't have the answer, but I just think perhaps a little bit of empathy rather than engaging in nagging and fighting might just be a little bit better for, for this listener, I think. So maybe cut them a bit of slack. I think saying. so. I think so. Yeah. In a long, I, yeah, long. I get that for that. What about for, so for that age group, but I'm, I'm asking for a friend here, i.e. myself, um, for teenagers who are like a little bit younger and in school and, you know, who are spending their midterm breaks, staying up till all hours, chatting to their friends and then, you know, sleeping the day away. Is it a little bit different when they're a bit younger, say like 14? I think a little bit different because there isn't a kind of a probably an onus on them to have a role. Do you know what I mean? And from the point yeah. of view of um, like to, to be able to get up and the, the independence that you achieve through the kind of 17, 18, 19, 20 is, is it's significant in terms of it's your, it's your burst into life where you can kind of stand on your own two feet and you can learn to budget and earn a few bob for yourself. And so there's a real kind of a coming of age that happens around that time around breaking out from home. And I just feel for the, that group because they've said, well, you can't leave now, you have to stay. And so there was a, there's a kind of an anticlimax of kind of expecting this for the last two or three years. Whereas the younger teens, I think they're probably the ones that are adopting the best to it because the, the online communication world is not new to them. They probably prior to COVID did a lot of their communication from their bedrooms to their friends. And, you know, from that point of view, the, certainly the online space doesn't present any challenges for them. And they probably didn't have the freedom of the older bunch to kind of independently socialize. And so I think with a little bit of creativity and obviously adhering to the guidelines, they can still do a bit of that socializing. But I think it's different for two 20-year-olds to come over to my house and, and listen to music or come over to uh, let's meet in the garden and have a chat uh, or go for a walk. It's probably a little bit more challenging for the 19, 20-year-olds than it is for the 14, 15-year-olds. Thanks, Coleman. So, so your next listener now, just the listener was saying a lot of what you and Karen said on your, your first episode resonated with me as I have three boys, seven, five and four. 
And I seem to be constantly breaking arguments that are overspills from rough play. So I end up just shouting at them and sending one to their room. And it tends to be the one who gets caught giving the final blow. So your point on rewarding nice and somewhat gentle play was really helpful. One major thing I struggle with, however, is where they won't listen to me. This good career break last year, which, which from a full on and demanding job, spend more time with the boys. And now I'm worried the time I'm spending with them is just me constantly shouting at them, despite me giving out the same things over and over. They still just consistently do the opposite. And it's astonishing me that they haven't yet grasped the things that tip me over the edge. How can I improve their listening or have you any tips to help with that? Yeah, that's an interesting one. My guess is that they have cottoned on to the things that tip you over the edge and they're the things that they're doing. And I don't mean that in a kind of a tongue in cheek way. Mm. The, it's important to understand that children, they see the visibility currency as really important. So they want to be seen. And oftentimes, if they only get seen or recognized or engaged with through misbehavior, then they'll oftentimes you'll see more of that. So this lady explained that she had been working in a demanding career and is now recently engaged in being at home a lot. And, you know, children struggle with that adjustment or that gear change when it has been a little bit distant to very proximal. So they might be just kind of testing the waters with that a little bit in terms of testing you to see if you, you're going to stay at home. Maybe that's an issue around it. But also what I'd say is that there's an interesting concept called the squeaky wheel syndrome, whereby the squeaky wheel is the only one that you oil. And so from the point of view of if you're not making noise or difficulty, you tend to be forgotten about. And what, what might have happened, this happens a lot. I don't want this listener to kind of give herself a hard time about it because we all fall into this. When we get into a, a predominantly nagging communication, it tends to dominate. And so every word that comes out of our mouth is anticipated that it's going to be a nag. And then the, the response is to try and rebuke against that or to, to rebel or to be resistant to it. And I'd say as the adult in the room, I don't think these boys are going to change first. So mum has to do the, the changing here. And I think it is about trying to catch these lads being good. And I think if, if because if, if your only communication is around arguing and fighting and, and, and kind of getting into conflict, that can become the manner in which you communicate. And then you have nothing else to talk about. And again, it is about, and I, I think it's a brave decision to make, but, and it's a very difficult one. But if you are the adult in the room saying, I'm going to change the temperature of this relationship, I'm not going to wait for them. And the other thing is, in the, in the heat of an argument, and when we're fighting with our teenagers or whatever the case may be, we, we see a benefit in the nagging and giving out, but there actually is none from the point of view of a behavioral change. There's never been a point tomorrow where I've ever heard two people having a massive dispute and mum nagging somebody about not cleaning the table or leaving the place in the mess or not tidying their room, where the child in the middle of it goes, you know, ma'am, you're right. Absolutely. What have I, I you know. <laughs> How have I missed this all a lot? Gee, yeah, absolutely. It's just never happened. So we're desperately clear in saying this does not work in making behavioral change, yet we can stop doing it in terms of having the arguments and having the rally. Why? Why is that? <laughs> it's, it's, to, it's to make us feel like we're doing something or that there is a yeah. sanction for it. And yes, there are. there has to be sanctions for misbehavior. There has to be rules, limits, and discipline. And I'm not for a moment suggesting there shouldn't be. But from the point of view of it's maybe not the thing that's going to change behavior. The change behavior does come from incentivizing. And I think from the point of view, if we get back to the idea that I was talking about the government messaging, if we keep just saying you're not doing enough, you're not doing enough, the 90% who are doing it are going to say it's the squeaky wheel. It's the, the people who are, who are having the house parties and having golf dues and all that. They're the ones that are getting all the recognition and us who are working away 
endeavorously are being forgotten about and you will get complacent and you will fatigue of working without any validation and you'll just say well what's the point we're all getting branded for being naughty or wrong anyway and so the idea is to try and catch these lads being good and again that's a complete gear change it's a complete change in how you parent them because it's you you're going to go in when they're quiet or when they're getting on or when they actually do something that they, you ask them and really over not over reward them materially, but over validate them and say, I really, really appreciated that. Thank you so much. You don't know what that means when you help me to clear off the table or when you do that. It really does. And thank you so much and have a crunchy or something like that or whatever the case may be. And actually get the visibility from the behavior that you want them to do, as opposed to rewarding them with the visibility of the behavior that you that is causing you difficulty. And what about uh, with teenagers? I've, I have a question here from a listener saying, can you talk about conflict resolution with teens? Every time I speak to my son, we end up growing. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. Do you have any advice? Yeah, a similar piece of advice would be the rows are, are, they don't really achieve anything other than getting things off our chest. And again, no, no argument or disagreement was ever resolved in the argument. So you're not going to come when you're shouting at each other across the landing and from the stairs, that's not where the resolution to the conflict is going to come. So I would say the best thing to do is reflect and revisit. So I would go to your teenager when things are calm and say, come here, let's go down to insomnia. We get a takeaway coffee and we're going to go for a walk or something. And in that kind of atmosphere, you you explain how, how the, the relationship is developing and how you're worried about that you don't have positive communication and that you want to reassign the contract here. How do we get on better? How, what is it that I'm doing that annoys you so much? And what is it that uh, I can do differently? And how can I meet you in the middle? And it is people say, oh, that's you. You're compromising your position as parent. You're not. You're actually showing a degree of compromise. If you look at any conflict resolution, you have to own your own issue and move in towards or else you get polarized. So say for if we're having an argument, Tamara, and you're at six and I'm at four. The more you move into seven, the more I move to three. The more you move to mm -hmm. eight, the more I move to two. And what happens is the, the risk becomes way, way polarized and never the twain shall meet. It's sometimes about moving from six to five and a half and enticing the other person to go from four to four and a half. Do you know what I mean? But again, with teenagers, we think that it's in some way weak to compromise. In actual fact, it's not. It's, it's about being the adult in the room and saying, I'm going to take control of this. And, and as an adult, I mean, one of the things that was really important is that emotional regulation is the task of childhood. So when we have a tantrum when we're three, because we don't get buttons, we're hoping by the time we're 19, we don't do that anymore because we've learned to regulate our emotions. And so children and teenagers are still in the process of learning how to regulate emotions you're the adult in the room, you're supposed to have this adjustment made. So if you're the one with the skill set, then you have to take the lead in how to do it. You're kind of saying, I'm going to change the conditions of this relationship here because it's going one way. You know, if you do what you always did, you get what you always got. And it is mm -hmm. about maybe changing that because it's not going to change by itself. And I do think sometimes we have to embrace the role of grown up and maybe say, how can I fix this? As opposed to how can I be right? I was saying, it just, it, for me, it comes back to the, the good old advice to, to just count to 10, especially particularly with my own teenager who knows just how to wind me up, you know. Um, I, I, I so. always remember that the line that, you know, and it always stuck at me, you know, sometimes with teenagers, we need to give them what they need rather than what they deserve. Yeah, so true.
I need to keep, I need to like file these away and like bring them <laughs> to the fore as I'm at the height of my own daughter. Well, you have the podcast okay, so now next... to refer to tomorrow. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so the next question. Uh, Hi there. I've enjoyed your podcast so far, but was hoping you could tackle some teenage issues, please. My teen is experiencing a lot of anxiety over fitting in with her peers, how she looks, whether boys find her attractive and so on. What are some ways to improve her self-esteem, confidence and coping mechanisms during this time? Uh, this mum goes on to say that this has actually led to her feeling very low time at times in herself and some self-harm and suicidal thoughts. Okay, well that's, that's, that's a sad uh, situation when, when your daughter is engaging in self-harm and has suicidal thoughts. But again, the, the complications that she's describing around self-belief, self-worth and self-esteem, they are really kind of pillars of our own mental well-being. And I, I really think we need to get a grasp of the difference between self-confidence and self-worth. And I think we probably live in a culture that I think encourages self-confidence a lot. But Tamara, confidence is how we project ourselves outwardly. So it's how we perform at things. So I could be very confident uh, singer. I could be very confident footballer. I can be very confident. But self-belief, self-worth and self-authenticity is my, my, my value on myself. And that's an inward relationship. So that's the relationship I have with me. And oftentimes that's the issue that seems to struggle. We can be a very good self-confidence, but poor self-belief and self-esteem. And so the idea then is to try and nourish your relationship with yourself. And the, unfortunately, this girl is getting into a situation where her environment is not validating her not rewarding her and maybe there are cruel things being said or maybe she's been betrayed or maybe she's been let down by friendships and there's a history of that which has kind of gotten her into this kind of very easy to do a kind of vicious cycle of negative thinking uh, and thinking I'm no good and I'm not worth anything and unfortunately in that dynamic there is a there's a self-fulfilling prophecy to it so to explain if I have an argument with my friend and I, I, I feel that they, they betray me or let me down or vulnerable. When I go into the next friendship, I kind of go, I just, I just want to fit in. I don't want to be controversial. I don't want to name anything. I don't want to upset the apple cart. I just want to fit in. And in fitting in, we kind of oftentimes allow people to walk all over us or to take advantage of us because we don't want to, to upset the membership in some respects. And when, when we allow people to do that, they tend to do it. We kind of give them permission to undermine us or to forget us or to, not think about us and if that happens in the second relationship because again you go in with your bar of self-respect too low then it'll happen again and again and again and contrary to your own belief or contrary to what what you'd feel like doing you have to raise your bar of self-respect in this moment and go into a friendship saying almost you're lucky to have me I'm a very kind loyal good person and so what I am going to add to this friendship and you are going to have to earn my friendship through how you and it's almost like you know trying to demand a high price when you're broke it's 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 a really brave move to do but it's absolutely necessary to break the low self-esteem cycle because if you keep going into friendships and relationships saying I'm just happy to be here those friendships don't tend to work out and they tend to have a kind of cyclical element of problematic behaviors or fallings out and so it is about doing almost the complete opposite to how you feel and there is a bit of faking it till you make it in terms of this but it is um it's a really difficult one and i've seen it so many times for young people and, and again i think as adults and as parents we need to kind of get the difference between fitting in and belonging because they're completely different things if you're just fitting in you're kind of we're taking away all our own desires and value systems just 
to be part of something. And that doesn't feel very good. It doesn't feel very authentic because, and I've heard this so many times from young people who said to me, Tamara, you know, I spent my whole life being someone who I thought other people wanted me to be, but I forgot to be myself. And there is something really, if you're not being authentic, all the, the feedback that you're getting kind of is empty. So like if you, if you let's imagine you were going for a, a job tomorrow and you said, Coleman, I'm, I'm going to go for this job. And these are the five questions that they're going to ask. And these are the five answers that I'm thinking of giving. And if I said to you, tomorrow, what are you thinking? There are rubbish answers. Here's the five answers you have to give. And I give you different ones and you go and get the job. You're not going to feel the same sense of satisfaction because it wasn't you that went in and achieved that in that way. So if you're being who other people want you to be and people saying, oh, you're great and you're good and you're this, but you're not who you, you're not your authentic self, even those, the praise falls on deaf ears, if that makes sense. And so the, we need to be able to believe to be authentic and to be real and to risk being real with people. But when you're a teenager in a very contentious environment of bitchiness and nastiness and everything else, it's an incredibly brave and difficult move to make. So I think you, you maybe try to encourage your daughter to, to believe in herself a little bit more, to be herself and just try and nurture that relationship she has with herself. Because a child who's engaging in self-harm or thinking about suicidal ideation their relationship with their, themselves is not good enough. And that's the area that needs the work as opposed to maybe changing the, the outside variables, just trying to do what you can to improve the inside ones. And on, on that point, a child is engaging in self-harm and having suicidal thoughts. I mean, we do have another question um, from a listener as well, just wondering, you know, at what point should you refer a child to a GP or mental health services? And, you know, how do you recognize it if something is just an, an age appropriate issue? You know, if a child, if you, if you, as a parent, are realizing your child is engaging in self harm, do you meet? Should you immediately be seeking professional help for them? At what point? Yeah, there's two, there's two ways of of understanding self harm, and again, I think from the point of view of the the context of self harm is very important, and sometimes self harm can be experimental. It can be something to try and it's a gesture. It can be something that's copied. It can be something cultural. In other ways, it can be something very serious and almost be a gateway behavior to something far more sinister. So in any case of self-harm, the alarms and red flags in every parent would go up and understandably so, but it doesn't automatically mean that the child wants to end their lives or anything like it. It may be just something that they're trying, they're struggling to adjust to. And this is, and remember that self-harm is, is the person's answer to the problem. It's not Mm -hmm. the problem. So the problem is elsewhere. And so if they're getting to that level of escalation, they're trying to communicate something or they're trying to manage something and they're just not managing it effectively. So it's a very maladaptive coping strategy, which basically means it's not a good way to manage life. And so the the help they need is with the life issue as opposed to the self-harm issue, if that makes sense. And so you're trying to, to focus the support on that. In terms of when to get help, I think we can jump to therapy too quickly and sometimes we can leave young people struggling far too long when they could have done with a lot of support earlier so I see both sides of this but I think the issue is when their functioning is being impaired past a point what then what you could be understood as normal so so from the point of view of if let's say for example uh, you broke up from a relationship tomorrow and you were a teenager and I came over to visit you and you were crying and upset and eating Hagendas and listen to sad music and like you'd only broken up with the person yesterday, I'd be kind of saying, well, there's no point in bringing you to the GP because this is a very normal reaction. However, if I went back six months later 
and you're still listening to the same CD and still eating the Hagendas and hadn't left the house and, and haven't changed your tracksuit in that time, then I might think you need some help. And so oftentimes it isn't the severity of the symptom, but the length of time that the symptom is, is happening without improvement. So I'd always try life improvements first. Try and see if you can adjust things in their social circle or improve their self-worth, their self-esteem and try and improve the circumstances around where the problem is and try to do that locally because there's something very satisfying of being able to manage something yourself without needing help. However, if that doesn't seem to be working, you don't, you wouldn't give it too much time for that. It's the enduring nature of the problem and how the function is, is being enduringly, is, is, is not coming back. That's when you start to intervene. And again, sometimes a, a therapist in the community or someone to talk to is a, a good start. And then obviously, but if there are any safety concerns, and I would say this to any parent, around the child doing something that may indeed harm them or somebody else, then you shouldn't, uh, I wouldn't be wasting time on anybody. I'd have a path worn to GPs, et cetera, to try and find as much support as possible. Now, the support services that we have available to us are not what they should be. Um, and that's a reality, but um, it is, it, I would try and find somebody so objective that they can listen to and somebody to, to just make a call and whether they think they need more help or not. The next question then, it's, it's a little bit different. So um, this parent is wondering, could you talk about parents who are dealing with chronic illnesses um, and just how, you know, discussing parents' own limitations with kids and how they might address that or what your line of thought that would be on that? I'm not sure from that question whether it's the child has the chronic illness or the parent has a chronic illness yeah it's not, it's not clear I'm not clear from reading the question myself now to be fair. I, I'll give you a, a bit of both I mean I think where the parent has illness uh, again the, there's a real issue with the child's anxiety and I, I do think we have to watch the children don't become carers of parents and uh, and it can sometimes be a resp responsibility that the conscientious child would take on very quickly to kind of be and they can, it can be overly onerous on the child to kind of take on that responsibility and they can feel a bit overburdened by that. And again, that's, that's something that they're responsible to their parents to be kind and, and courteous and everything, but they're not responsible for. So they have to kind of step back a little bit from that. The second issue might be some, a, a parent who's ill and the child doesn't seem to be reacting at all. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they don't care or that they're heartless or that they have an issue. It just might be that, that they can't manage to process the emotion. And I've seen plenty of young people over the, the years who would have had an, an ill parent who would have objectively not appeared to be bothered at all and without, out with their friends and distracting themselves and everything else. But when you pick at the surface, that child is incredibly stressed and worried about it, but they're just unable to kind of articulate it or manage it or, or certainly um, communicated effectively. In the case of where a child has chronic illness, again, trying to help, help, help the child with the illness is really important to try and, again, trying to keep self-esteem, self-worth and self-belief intact is hugely important to all of this and that they try and feel as capable and able as possible. But one of the things I would point out to, and again, this is a position that I feel utterly compassionate to every parent in this situation, the siblings of young people with chronic illness are people who tend to come across my desk. So from the point of view, if, if you have a child or brother or sister who it might have chronic illness or they might just have special needs where there's lots of appointments needed or they may have a child sibling with autism or sibling, sibling with terminal illness or sickness and that other sibling can feel quite 
left out, number one, but they also feel very guilty for feeling left out because they understand that their parents and their brother and sister can do nothing about the situation. And it can be incredibly complex where the, the young person is trying to manage their own, like, this isn't fair, but they don't want to make the issue of debating and arguing and causing more stress. So they internalize a lot of the guilt and the worry and the stress about it and can oftentimes develop in the manifestation of a symptom and oftentimes can be later on. Um, and I, I just would say to parents, if you have a young person with needs and special needs, the, the visibility of the other sibling is so important. And again, I'm heaping more pressure on people who are already under incredible pressure. But say, for example, I've had children who maybe their parents, they, they come out of school on a day and they don't know who's going to collect them because mom and dad are up with the other sibling at some appointment or they've gotten ill or they've gotten sick and they feel kind of a little bit passed around or a little bit, you know, unimportant and trying to acknowledge that difficulty for sibs who are uh, struggling with somebody in the family with, with, with extra needs is just important that, that their visibility be recognized as much as possible. But I completely understand the, the circumstances for parents who are already stretched with an ill sibling and a sibling who, who has that demand on their time. And it's absolutely understandable that, that they would feel overstretched, but it's just, it's something I've noticed and I'd seen. And so to parents out there, it's just maybe something that to keep mindful of. It, that must be so overwhelming when you know you're you're dealing with a, a child with a chronic illness and then you're having to factor in the, the needs and the, the emotions of your of the siblings as well God, it's, oh that's, yeah, it's phenomenal it's phenomenal cool. task um, and and yeah. phenomenally difficult for the child as well who who doesn't feel they have a right to be annoyed but they still miss out on loads of stuff and they feel bad for being annoyed about it it's a really complex dynamic but it, certainly when it comes to chronic illness it, it would be the oftentimes the sibling of the uh, the ill person that tends to be the one that would come our way. And it's just a kind of, it's, it's just a word to the wise to, to be mindful of them. So the next question is an interesting one. So I'm a listener whose son has recently turned six. He's always been a boy who loves playing outdoors, running, climbing, cycling, all the usual activities. The other kids he plays with are a couple of years older than him. And he's wondering, you know, how he mingles with these. He always looks to great, never complains or comes in upset over something that could have been said. But in, in the main, you know, he, he is playing with children who, who are a little bit older than him. Is he too young to do this? The gap in years is pretty significant at his age. You know, six months, he's a lot of growth. And he knows that they'll have interests that he won't fully understand. And potentially he might be embarrassed about things that they like, but may not express them to him. So he's just wondering, is that an issue? Yeah, this is something that's going to come up later in the series because a, a couple of our, our parenting interviews have this as an issue. And it's around... At what point do you give independence to a child without, you know, kind of leaving them in an unsafe position? Or how do you avoid kind of over scaffolding them so you disable their independence in some ways? So I'll part the discussion and say that's going to come up a lot later on. But in this case, I would say to you, to this listener, your child age is your child age. It doesn't matter who they hang out with. It doesn't make them more mature than they are. And so if your child is six, they should be taking on the challenges of a six-year-old, even though their friends are seven, eight, nine, or whatever it might be, they're not. And so you have to kind of manage the expectation of their ability because their age is their age. And the other thing I would say is that children who tend to what we call kind of hyper-mature or they kind of hang around with older children earlier, they do tend to miss things. So little like developmental steps and emotional steps around managing things. If they're kind of, if they're skipping on too quickly in the kind of, physical or social maturity, the emotional maturity may miss some steps. And so it's not always a good thing. It's not always a sign 
of of wisdom um, and certainly not a, a sign of emotional maturity. So just be cautious of that. Um, I, 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 it came up in in the conversation with Karen Coster the last day where, where there's a younger sibling trying to be the same as the older one um, and they're not the older one. And again, it's kind of, you know, children are their age. And um, although the milestones are variable and every child varies from one to another, emotionally, they tend to be their age. And so from the point of view of taking on tasks and having the sense and sensibility to do things will be akin to their developmental level. So no, I wouldn't be rushing this lad to be up with his pals um, and I, he might even benefit from you holding him back a little bit if he wants to. The next question is, the, the listener has said, she thought that the show with Karen was very, very relatable. Uh, her own kids are 8, 11 and 13. And she has a question about her 13-year-old son who will purposely wind up his 8-year-old brother. It's all silly banter, but at the same time, it's become a trigger for the 8-year-old to get very upset. You know, clenched fists, tears, the works. And they've done the whole calm discussion, walk away, don't react. But it's a daily event and there's a pair of them involved in it. So any words of wisdom, she'd really appreciate it as it can ruin the family dinners and also the middle child is suffering as well. OK, so there's an oldest child and youngest child who are, are, are at each other. I mean, I, I think you probably reward the victim in this situation a little bit, um, because if there is a, a case where the child is being picked on by an older sibling and there's, there's clear in power imbalance there and that's not fair. And as the parent, you kind of have to ensure that each of your children feel safe in their own homes. And so from the point of view, it is about managing that older sibling as firmly as can be. However, if there's a provocative element to it and the younger one is, is to use the expression, draw him onto him. And uh, that needs to be managed as well. But I mean, I think, again, re readdressing the contract of how people relate within the family is really important. And I think I'd be having a sit down with this family and saying, you know, this can't go on and this is affecting everybody and everyone has a responsibility to to act as a team here. And there will be sanctions to this behavior. And and again, it is about following through on the sanctions. I, I remember somebody very wise saying to me, you know, uh, abandoning a trip to the park can have a far more important lesson than the trip to the park. So from the point of view, if you're going somewhere, doing something is planned and they do start acting up, that you do turn around and come home and say, that's not happening today because of that. And again, it is around the lessons of what you expect. Your, your culture of your family at home is really important. What you accept, what you don't accept and where you see the lines are that you just don't cross. Really important to establish that and have that clear for everybody in the house. And again, we can oftentimes say, you know, oh, we're being taken over by tablets and we can be taken over by, you know, media and all that sort of stuff and peers and friends. But all the evidence would suggest that family cultures and family values still hold the main influence over our children's behaviors and belief systems. And so it is about saying this is what we accept and this is what we don't. This is what type of a family we are and this is a family we're not. And really setting clear boundaries for that and sticking to them for a period of time until the children or these two lads learn to to be less provocative with each other and certainly less physical with each other. That's a labor of, of months rather than days, but could well be worth it. These guys are still young enough to be able to manage this. When they're 18 and 15, it's a different challenge. So uh, I'd have a family meeting around the table, redraw the contracts, set the rules and just try and stick to them as much as possible. They don't have to get on all the time, but physically provoking each other and effectively assaulting each other is not on either and that's where you have to draw the line of what's acceptable and not and do you, do you involve the middle child in that so when you sit around it's the whole family or, or i think it is the whole family, family because i think from the point of view of 
it's not necessarily just about telling people off. It's about making a plan for how do we go forward. And I would put it that way. This isn't about retribution. This is about uh, planning and and how how we can negotiate the the landscape of this family for the next 12 months because the last 12 have been not good enough and we need to change that. Don't be afraid of having the explicit discussions with people and kind of bring it into a point. You're far more likely to get the consensus around the table than if you're all shouting each other over the landing when one has punched the other because nothing will be resolved when everyone's highly aroused by anger and frustration. It's oftentimes when everyone's calm, bringing people together. And like people might, you know, dismiss the notion of family meetings and think it's very this and it's very that. What we're saying and, and saying this throughout the whole series Communication is so important and being explicit around our communication and ensuring that everyone around the table understands what is being asked of them. And it's such an easy thing to oversee. And But I've been part of so many family meetings over the years that a miscommunication, a misinterpretation or a misunderstanding has caused years of grief for families and just ironing out that for all parties and having some sort of a mutual agreed understanding of what needs to happen can it can make a difference and again uh, i would say to all the listeners don't knock it till you try it the next listener has two daughters 13 and 10 and says so lots of emotions <laughs> her 13 year old daughter has started secondary school in september and she's finding it really difficult and uh, not the work or the teachers but the friendships her two best friends from primary school are in the same class or sorry the same school but in a different class the problem seems to be that they're all making new friends including her daughter but was terrified that if they let these new friends in, she'll lose her best friends. And this happened to her in third class and her mom brought her to a play therapist as there was bullying involved. She came on very well after a lot of support. She's just listening to her at the moment and not giving her any answers because at the moment she doesn't think she has any to give her, but she'd love her to have the confidence to let these new kids in a little and any advice would be greatly appreciated again here. Remind me what age she is, Tamara? She's 13. She just started 13. secondary school. Okay, well, the, 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 the truth here is that friendships evolve. So when you go from primary school, it's very territorial friendships. So it's my best friend, your best friend. You're not allowed to hang, talk to anyone else because you're mine. And it's all very black and white and ownership is very clear here. When you hit secondary school, it becomes far less black and white and much more gray. And it, as a consequence, it becomes much more about the group and the mentality of the group. So there's six or eight or five or three or four, and it's a much more the group identity takes over. So the territorialism of primary school and having best friends and not, that she may need to leave that go a little bit and actually accept that she now becomes part of a, a larger number of people. And you'll see that evolve as from first, second and third year, that group mentality becomes and it's not always a very healthy kind of reality, but it is a reality nonetheless. And so maybe this girl is just holding on to the concreteness and the black and whiteness of the past, where in primary school it was a little bit clear cut. And maybe if she's had poor experiences of bullying and things like that, she's maybe feels safer in those kind of parameterized or very clear relationships. But she just may need to embrace the gray because when we're in children, we, we see things as very black and white. So goodies and baddies, cops and robbers, cowboys, Indians. But when you hit 13, 14, 15, you realize that nothing is black and white, that everything is gray. And you'll know people and you'll say, oh, she's really funny and she's really nice, but she's also quite mean and nasty. And so how can they both coexist in the one person? And, you know, some people, some children really struggle with the grayness and the light and shade of, of us all. But the reality is that they will have to learn to tolerate the gray. And oftentimes the comfort of the group means that you can learn to tolerate the gray better together, if that makes sense. So it may be just about mm. supporting her to adjust to the new landscape, that the territorialism of my best friend and your best friend 
may be something that is diluting naturally and it's not necessarily that she's being ousted out of something and that you know she may be ahead of herself if she can get part of a group of four five six seven or whatever the case may be all is good but i would a word of warning and i'll kind of finish on this um three is not the magic number when it comes to friendships if you can avoid friendships in threes because they always cause trouble when parent says you can bring one friend to your auntie's 50th or something and you have to choose one of the two you know there's always going to be that kind of power imbalance in threes um so a word to the wise uh twos or fours when you're picking pals um i, I would say that's a well, great piece of advice i've never heard that before <laughs> no it is it's hugely problematic and i've seen it so many times where there is a, a three dynamic and then you know it just is always who's my favorite and who's the best out of the three and it just causes eruptions. So you can have pairs or even numbers. I would tend to go with that. I have to say, thinking back to my own uh, teenage years and I went to an all-girls school, like friendships are really challenging as a teenage girl. They really are. They're, they're one of the most difficult things that you have oh to Oh my have. God, like the, the playground politics of secondary school is phenomenal <laughs> in terms of the, the membership of the group and, you know, who's the dominant. There's rules. You can't, you know, you don't take on the leader of the membership and you don't take on the membership of the group and you don't, mixed with other people and you know the complexity of it is pretty and and again the i'm guessing this will come up over the further series the issues of exclusion and you know the, the complexities of social media and all the kind of the opportunities to bully and pick and exclude are phenomenally more complex than even they were when we were in school or when i was in school certainly so yeah there'll, there'll be plenty of material to talk over the next few episodes around all of that so one final question the, this mama sent in quite a lot of information, but in relation to her daughter, who will be four next month, she's a bright, articulate, fun and loving young girl. She potty trained at two years old with ease and we took her lead in starting the process, but she's had some regressions and is currently going through daytime wetting and this is now extended to soiling. So this regression has been, you know, approximately eight weeks and it's, I think it's happened a couple of times. The first time was after the birth of her brother and then it happened again since she started preschool. Okay, so this girl has trained and is now having accidents again, uh, and they're yes. happening in school, and it is in tandem with school attendance. So it wasn't happening when she wasn't in school; it's happening again when she's back. And it's is it's a preschool or a school? From day one, she loved preschool, so she's in preschool. preschool. But it did okay. happen. The first time she regressed though was when uh, she was two and a half, so about six months after the birth of her brother. So it's it's okay. been happening so all along. So there's saying. connections here to stress the arrival of the brother and and the school. So there is a degree of pattern to it. And assuming she has had all the physical checks of UTIs and everything else that, that they've yes. been ruled out. So from the point of view of for this one, I I would definitely say Tamara, less is more here. And I would think you know not playing down the instances, but actually trying to to kind of encourage this child to manage things a little bit better. And that might be in terms of bringing her to the bathroom regularly and kind of going back into the training module a little bit. But, you know, bring her regular breaks to see where she goes. She may be so distracted or she may be so stressed that she's forgetting to go or she may be so busy that she's forgetting to go or maybe there is an element of stress in there that she's just not getting enough notice that it's going to happen. And so very simply kind of getting the, the preschool and people involved, kind of bring her every maybe 30 minutes or so. She will actually work out is that it's more disruptive to have that going on rather than managing it. And she may begin to manage it better to almost get off the program of, of going back every half an hour, if that makes sense. So it's, it might motivate her. But I would think there may indeed be something around the anxiety of the school environment but if there's nothing coming forward from the teachers or from the child herself 
it may just be a feeling that she has and she may not be able to articulate it. And oftentimes we, we see these kind of anxieties being expressed through, and it can oftentimes be wetting at night or, or wetting during the day. And again, that kind of symbiosis between our, our feelings and our bodies are, are, are undeniably close. And so from the point of view, but in terms of the practical measurement here, I wouldn't be going down a very heavy emotional route with this child, but actually just trying to support her to re-regulate and re-get in touch with that. But I would sell it really as an incentive and I would be putting like star charts in place and trying to incentive and get some quick wins in here to start to make her feel a little bit good about herself and accomplished about herself. And yeah, make this a kind of a fun activity to try and manage it. But yeah, that, that would be my first point of intervention without escalating to anything else at the moment. But quite a lot of expressed emotion around this, this little girl and, and, and her accidents. So as I said from the start, less is more. And just try and put it in a very practical program of we're going to use the bathroom every half hour and we're going to see if that helps things a little bit. And my guess is it will. Yeah, no, she, she does say that she's trying. they are trying to uh, have, take that approach and they're trying to praise efforts over outcome. She, she did say that they have been in touch with the public health nurse and spoke to the resident child psychologist and they did mention anxiety. So um, yeah. they are actually waiting for an appointment. Yeah, and um, maybe just managing the the their own anxiety as well might be helpful in this one because uh, it, is, it is stressful, of course it is. But yeah, I'd, I'd go over practical on this one and just kind of a program in place to try and say we're going to help you to manage this and we're going to master this not that it's a guilt or shame issue but actually this is something we believe that you can manage and we're going to help you to achieve it so that are our questions for this week tomorrow yeah that's all of your questions wow huge amount of them <laughs> Tamara, thank you so much for that that was fantastic and i really appreciated you coming on the show and helping me with that there's clearly a lot of people with a lot of questions out there and i know there were other people who got in touch with the who had asked questions about themes that I know are coming up in shows coming down the line so if you did email your question in and it, we didn't get to it today it's definitely on a log of questions that we'll be getting to in the next episodes and just to remind you that we had said that we would release an episode a week over 16 weeks given the popularity of the first show and, and the demand that we've had we're now going to drop two shows a week so we'll have the listeners uh, questions episode will be dropped on a Sunday and then the parenting interview uh, will be done every Wednesday and so we'll be dropping two episodes a week for the next eight weeks or so bringing us right up to Christmas but as I said at the start if you have any questions be sure to get them into us here on askingforaparent at gmail.com you can get us on the Twitter handle which is at asking for the number a parent and you can catch us on the Instagram pages or Facebook pages at asking for a parent if you have any questions that you want us to talk through or work through please get in touch with us my thanks again to Tamara and Nolan for joining me on this episode. And we look forward to hearing your questions and we'll speak to you in the next episode. Bye for now.